Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha in this book series titled The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. We're in volume three, which is titled Foundations in the Teachings, and we're studying 10 chapters per week in this book. This week, we're in chapters 81 through 90, where students will be reading each individual chapter. I'll give some teachings on each individual chapter, and then we can discuss them and handle any questions that you guys have related to the specific chapters. If you're joining us for the first time, you can actually download these books for free by going to buddhadailywisdom.com. There's a link there for free books, and you can download them, and you can join into the program where you can read 10 chapters per week and then progress with the group as you go. And the way that we start these sessions is we start with a meditation where you actually can prepare the mind with a brief little, maybe 10, 15 minute meditation just to prepare it for study so that the mind can retain the teachings and then apply them in daily life. As we're reading the chapters in class today, I'll be displaying those on the screen so that if you don't have access to the book right now or you haven't read the book, you'll be able to read along with us and gain benefit out of the class through the reading, through the teaching of the actual chapter, and through any discussion that we have related to each chapter. So I'd like to welcome you to our class today and at the same time invite you to join us for meditation and join us for learning and studying the words of the Buddha through the Pali Canon in English. So go ahead and take a position, either seated, standing, or lying, and bring the body into your comfortable meditation position. If that's on the floor or in a chair, whatever's comfortable for you, everybody's going to sit a little bit different. It's not about everybody being in exactly the same position, but instead having the lower body comfortable with the hands and arms comfortably in the lap and the upper body nice and erect. Next, close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Breathing in and out. Just going to give some light guidance here just to help you get situated in meditation. Your breath isn't going to necessarily match with the guidance that I'm giving. But just remember to breathe in through the nose and out through the nose. 
Anytime the mind is off the breath, cut that off and let it go. Come back to the breath. The mind should be fixated on the breath as the focal point. And when the mind is not on the breath, cut it off and bring it back to the breath. Breathing in and out.
to make your way out of meditation we'll go ahead and get started with today's class we just do a brief meditation just to kind of prepare the mind a bit for class if you're joining us on facebook youtube or in zoom you'll be able to ask questions as we go throughout today's class we're going to be displaying the chapters of the book on the screen so that students can read each chapter and you can follow along in the class whether you've read these chapters or you haven't, you'll be able to learn and glean information from the actual class today. So I'd like to go ahead and turn things over to the moderators who will just kind of guide the class in terms of who's reading and then we'll progress from chapters 81 through 90 with a student reading then i'll share the teaching that i'd like to share on that particular chapter and then we can open up to any discussion or questions you guys have if you're going to ask a question just put that into facebook youtube or zoom in the comment section our moderators will see that and be sure your question gets asked during the class if you're in zoom you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly Sure. Let's go to Miranda for the first chapter. 
Okay. Simile of the tortoises. Monks, in the past, a tortoise was searching for food along the bank of the river one, one evening. On that same evening, a jackal was also searching for food along the bank of that same river. When the tortoise saw the jackal in the distance searching for food, it drew its limbs and neck inside its shell and passed the time keeping still and silent. The jackal had also seen the tortoise in the distance searching for food, so he approached and waited close by, thinking, when this tortoise extends one or another of its limbs or its neck, I will grab it right on the spot, pull it out, and eat it. But because the tortoise did not extend any of its limbs or its neck, the jackal, failing to gain access to it, lost interest and departed. So too, monks, Mara the evil one is constantly and continually waiting close by to you, thinking, perhaps I will gain access to him through the eye, or through the ear, or through the nose, or through the tongue, or through the body, or through the mind. Therefore, monks, residing guarding doors of the six sun spaces, having seen a form with the eye, having heard a sound with the ear, having smelt an odor with the nose, having tasted a flavor with the tongue, having touched a physical object with the body, having recognized a mental object with the mind, do not grasp its signs and features. Since if you leave the eye sense base unguarded, the ear sense base unguarded, the nose sense base unguarded, the tongue sense base unguarded, the body sense base unguarded, the mind sense base unguarded, evil unwholesome states of craving and displeasure might invade you. Practice the way of restraint. Guard the eye sense base, the ear sense base, the nose sense base, the tongue sense base, the body sense base, the mind sense base. Undertake the restraint of the eye sense base, the ear sense base, the nose sense base, the tongue sense base, the body sense base, and the mind sense base. When monks reside guarding the doors of the six sense spaces, Mara the evil one, failing to gain access to you, will lose interest in you and depart, just as the jackal departed from the tortoise. Drawing in the mind's thoughts as the tortoise draws its limbs into its shell, independent, not harassing others, fully extinguished, a monk would not blame anyone. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So this particular simile is very popular. It's well known. What it's referencing is the six sense bases. The six sense bases are where the mind longs for central pleasures. This is connected to the fetter, the taint, or the pollution of mind described as central desire. This is the fourth fetter. And in order to move into the jhanas, a practitioner would need to distance themselves from central desires and kind of putting some space between the mind and central desires. A person in the jhanas will still have central desire, but the craving desire attachment through the sense bases will be somewhat diminished. And then that gradually needs to be worked on until you ultimately eliminate the fourth fetter, which is the central desire. And the Buddha is giving this simile here, connecting it not only to the six sense bases, but also Mara, the evil one. This is a being that is known for evilness, for being interested in causing harm and calamity in the world. And this being will essentially tempt others who are on this path or even who are off this path, looking to kind of cause destruction on the earth. And what the Buddha is sharing here is that if you 
restrain the sense bases, if you guard the sense bases, and ultimately you get into the, the jhanas, that's where Mara won't be able to entice you. But here, even as you're not in the jhanas, if you restrain the sense bases, Mara will eventually lose interest and kind of go away from you. But it's not until you get into the jhanas that the mind is really fully protected from Mara, where you won't be influenced by the negativity and the interest in causing harm that Mara will oftentimes try to create in your life for you. Everything comes down to your decisions. Mara can't make a decision for you to use substances that cause heedlessness, or Mara can't make a decision for you to kill somebody, or for you to steal or have sexual misconduct or lie or things like this. But Mari can certainly influence it and attempt the mind. And what the Buddha is explaining here is that by restraining the sense bases, you will then be less affected by Mara and eventually Mara will lose interest in you and move on. He talks about guarding the doors of the sense bases. This is also referred to as guarding the doorways of discontentedness because it's through the six sense bases that the mind is going to experience discontentedness. So if the eye sees a physical form that it finds agreeable, then the mind's going to have pleasant feelings, happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, all of these pleasant feelings. And the mind is discontent because it sees this agreeable form. And then if the mind is experiencing those pleasant feelings, it's going to crave that. It's going to cling to it. It's going to try to hold on to it. And as long as the mind is doing that, it continues to experience craving or longing or this strong eagerness through these sense bases. And eventually those pleasant feelings will fade. And now the mind's going to move into painful feelings of anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, all these other painful feelings that the mind experiences. Another way that this can happen is the mind can be longing and craving through the sense bases for these pleasant feelings. And if it gets the objects of its affection, those agreeable forms or sounds or odors, tastes, flavors, the physical contact to the body or these mental objects, then it experiences those pleasant feelings. But if it's longing and chasing after the objects of its affection and it doesn't get what it wants, then it's going to experience painful feelings. This anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, and all the rest. So what a practitioner should be doing, among other things, on this path to enlightenment is restraining the mind from longing and craving through these six sense bases and then guarding the doors. So if you know certain aspects of the mind, let's just say you're very attracted to other human beings. You see a man that's very handsome or you see a woman that you consider to be very beautiful or very sexy and your eyes and the mind is drawn towards this through the eyes. Well, if you know that about the mind and how the mind functions, then with that awareness of mind, when you're going into situations where you know this occurs, then you can be guarding the doorway. So perhaps when you go to your local mall or you go to a evening event where people are dressed somewhat provocatively, for example, then you know going into that situation, the mind's gonna have a tendency to pull through the eyes for these handsome and beautiful beings. 
And what you need to do is you need to guard the doorways. And when you observe the mind wanting to pull in that direction, then you cut that off and let it go. This is the way you train the mind to no longer have that craving. So as the mind's pulling and longing, you yank it back and yank it back and yank it back over a long period of time with meditation and with everything else that we do a part of this path, including this, the mind eventually gets to the point where it submits and it will no longer long through the sense bases. So the mind's going to long through the eyes for agreeable forms. It's going to long through the ears for agreeable sounds, through the nose for agreeable odors, through the tongue for agreeable flavors, through the body for agreeable physical objects, and through the mind for agreeable mental objects. And when it gets those, the objects of its affection, it's going to have those pleasant feelings. When those fade, or if it doesn't get the pleasant feelings, it's going to experience those painful feelings. So allowing the mind to long and crave for these pleasant feelings is just inviting the painful feelings to come into the mind at some point. It's just a matter of time. So by restraining the mind and guarding the doorway, knowing what the mind is pulling towards in any of these six senses, then you can guard that. And then when you observe the mind wanting to pull in that direction, you yank it back. You cut it off and let it go. This is one of the things that breathing mindfulness meditation is helping the mind to learn to do and get trained to do so that it can do this more easily and more readily in daily life. So let's see what questions you guys have on this particular chapter. Well, uh, Nick has his hand raised. Let's look at him. Hello, teacher. I was wondering, um, you said uh, Amari can't make decisions for you, right? But how, how does he influence you? Like, does he get into the mind or does he like put situations in front of you? I'm just curious to how that works because I know I've been influenced in the past. Yeah, everybody's been influenced by Mara at some point, probably multiple, multiple times. There's the ability for beings to communicate within different realms. So while we're in the human realm and there's this heavenly realm, there's this afflicted spirits, there's this animal and there's this hell realm. Just like when you come in contact with an animal, you can play with it. It can bark at you. You can talk to the animal. You're interacting with a being of another realm at that point. Well, these other realms that are the formless realms of hell, afflicted spirits, and the heavenly realm, Mara is overseeing the realm of hell and also afflicted spirits and roams about the world just like all other beings. And these beings of all these other realms, hell, afflicted spirits, and heavenly realm can communicate with us. And we can communicate with them too, but we just don't tend to talk about it or people aren't necessarily aware of it. So Mara can kind of get into the mind and try to entice the mind, just like maybe if you had somebody kind of whispering in your ear and like, ah, Nick, you know you would like to start using alcohol again or using uh, drugs or, oh, Nick, just lie to your friends. You know, you don't need to tell the truth here. It's almost like somebody whispering in your ear, but you're not going to necessarily hear the voice. It's just kind of influenced internally in the mind. Another way it can happen is like what you experienced when you were traveling in Thailand and you were down in Phuket and you were walking back and forth on the street at different times to go get food and get different things. And there were different people that were kind of calling you over, wanting you to get involved in certain things. 
and after you went back and forth a few times your mind was restrained and guarded they stopped bothering you right so that wasn't mara themselves but mara has already influenced those beings to be doing the things that they're doing and now those beings in the humanly realm are trying to influence you and this is essentially like mara as well because mara has already influenced those beings and now those human beings were trying to influence you and call you over. But just like the tortoise, by you not giving in, by you not indulging in that, eventually the jackal, which those people were the jackal, they lost interest in you. And then you walked back and forth and they kind of knew not to bother you or not to try to entice you because they lost interest in you because they weren't getting what they wanted. So it can happen just on its own by communication from Mara or it can happen through beings functioning that have already been influenced by Mara, but they're functioning based through their own pollution of mind. Thank you for the examples, teacher. Yes, you're welcome. Ali has a question. Let's look over here. Hi, teacher David. Um, so my question is um, regarding the sense, does that mean like kind of staying away? Like for instance, if you're attracted to um, if I'm attracted to a man at a party, so that means, and he's gonna, I know that he's gonna be going to the party. It does that guarding the sun mean staying away from the party or just be there at the party and cut that um, um, feeling out? It really comes down to your decisions, Ali. There's always say 10 million right answers, right? The Buddha is not going to tell you exactly what to do in terms of, you know, should you go to the party or should you not? It really comes down to your own independent practice. If you're at a point where you're trying to eliminate central desire, and that's something you're trying to eliminate 100%, which means if you're going to eliminate central desire, you're completely working to eliminate all craving through the, the sense spaces, which includes sexual contact. So a person who chooses to move in that direction wouldn't actually have a sexual partner, for example. But if you're not there yet and you're still choosing to have a partner, then your decisions are going to be different. So it really comes down to, are you interested in having a partner or are you eliminating this sensual desire and looking to eliminate any kind of interaction with a partner 100%? But either way, whether you choose to go to the party or not, it's your decision. If you chose not to go to the party, of course, that's going to be the most active way to cut off any kind of sensual desire that might arise from that situation. Because the Buddha shared with us in other teachings that if we ever are aware of some activity that arises sensual desire in the mind, then we should cease that activity that we should refrain from doing that activity if we observe that it's a rising sensual desire or really any kind of craving in the mind whatsoever. We should cease that activity and eliminate the craving from the mind. But if you're interested in having a partner, then maybe you do go to the party because you are attracted to this person and you know maybe they're attracted to you. But still, what you would do as a wise practitioner in that situation is cut off any kind of craving or longing through the sense bases. So it's not that you necessarily have to eliminate the, a partner. If you're going to still hold on to central desire, you can still have a partner 
and make your way to the first and second stage of enlightenment and then at such a time that you're ready choose to let go of central desire but when you're in a relationship with a partner you would like to get to the point where you're practicing true love which is unconditional love and you don't have this attachment to the individual so if the relationship is just starting off and you're going to this party it would be wise to ensure that you don't have this attachment so that if this person maybe is talking to another woman you're completely fine with that or if they're not showing attention to you you're completely fine with that whereas if the mind is craving desiring attached to this individual when you observe them talking to another man or another woman you might be jealous or envious or if they didn't show you a certain amount of attention then you're going to perhaps be angry or irritated or frustrated annoyed and this is due to the craving desire attachment you have to that individual and to the relationship so if you observe that about the mind yes you can go but you need to cut it off and let it go let go of the mental longing you don't have to necessarily let go of the relationship relationships are wonderful and they're very meaningful in life but what the mind needs to be trained to do is not to have this craving desire attachment this longing through the sense bases for certain things to occur or not to occur that's where we cause our own discontentedness thank you teacher you're welcome well i'm seeing that you are capitalizing the name of mara is this a kind of uh, respect yeah so what i tend to do when i write is i capitalize all titles all names all beings are the same even though this being mara we know is a harmful being a evil being a being that is only interested in causing harm and calamity in the world it doesn't mean we need to judge mara and look down on mara and think of this being as any less of a being than anyone else so i capitalize mara just like i capitalized the perfectly enlightened one just like i capitalized kings or prince or queen or princesses or village headmen or uh, leaders community leaders i capitalize all of these titles because we should look at all beings as equal even beings such as mara that we know is very heavily polluted in the mind but still we can have loving kindness and compassion for this being we don't need to have hatred and anger towards this being we just need to be aware that this being exists know what they're up to and be observant when these influences are coming from mara so that you can cut them off and let them go and not be negatively influenced to make unwholesome decisions and as i mentioned it's still your decisions there's mara isn't going to make a decision for you isn't going to control the body isn't going to control the mind isn't going to force you to say anything they're just going to be communicating with you almost like whispering in your ear attempting to influence you to do certain things but it's your choices that are going to lead to whatever results so we can have loving kindness and compassion for this being of mara and just know that mara is lacking wisdom moral conduct and mental discipline but still have politeness kindness friendliness and respectfulness for this other being thanks teacher let's go to nick for chapter 82 all right the simile of a bowl of oil monks 
Suppose that I'm hearing the most beautiful girl of the land, the most beautiful girl of the land, a crowd of people would assemble. Now that most beautiful girl of the land would dance exquisitely and sing exquisitely. I'm hearing the most beautiful girl of the land is dancing. The most beautiful girl of the land is singing. An even larger crowd of people would assemble. Then a man would come along, aspiring to live, not aspiring to die, aspiring for peacefulness, uninterested in discontentedness. Someone would say to him, Good man, you must carry around this bowl of oil filled to the brim between the crowd and the most beautiful girl of the land. A man with a drawn sword will be following right behind you. And wherever you spill it, even a little of it, right there, he will cut off your head. What do you think, monks? Would that man stop attending to that bowl of oil and out of negligence turn his attention outwards? No, venerable sir. I have made up this simile, monks, in order to convey a meaning. This here is the meaning. The bowl of oil filled to the brim. This is the designation for mindfulness directed to the body. Therefore, monks, you should train yourself thus. We will develop and cultivate mindfulness directed to the body. Make it our vehicle, make it our basis, stabilize it, exercise ourselves in it, and fully protect it. Thus, monks, should you train yourselves. All right. Thanks, Nick. So here, the Buddha's simile on the bowl of oil, which is another pretty famous popular simile, he's illustrating how important mindfulness of the body is. What mindfulness of the body is, is being aware of the bodily sensations. This is the four foundations of mindfulness. Bodily sensations, the feelings, the condition of the mind, and mental objects. And in order to attain enlightenment, a practitioner, we need to understand these four foundations in detail and be able to practice in such a way that you have mindfulness, awareness of all four of these four foundations of mindfulness. Particularly, you're going to have to develop the mind to a point where you're aware of bodily sensations. The others are a bit easier to develop your awareness of, but you really need to hone the mind in where it's really dialed in and you can observe the bodily sensations. Because prior to any discontentedness arising, there's going to be bodily sensations that help the mind understand that discontentedness is getting ready to arise. Whether it's pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or neither painful nor pleasant, when these feelings are getting ready to arise, there's going to be some bodily sensation associated with it. So using this simile, if the eye sees the beautiful girl, a physical form, the mind then becomes aware of it. This is what we call eye consciousness. There's been contact between the eye, the physical form, and now the mind's aware of it. There's been contact. Now, if this person is going to have pleasant feelings with that awareness that the mind has, it's going to produce bodily sensations in the body. There might be some tingling, there might be some butterfly feelings, everybody's going to be a little bit different. But if you become really aware of the bodily sensations that are occurring prior to pleasant feelings arising, then what you can do is you can cut it off and let it go. You can cut off 
the discontentedness, those arising pleasant feelings that are conditioned on seeing this beautiful girl. Or likewise, if the ear hears the crowd or hears the singing, it's the ear that hears the sound. Now the mind is aware of it. This is called ear consciousness. There's been contact with this sound and now there's going to be some pleasant feeling perhaps that arises and there's going to be bodily sensations that you observe prior to that happening. And if you can cut it off and let it go there, then the mind can remain steady. It can remain calm. It can remain unshakable. It can remain focused and concentrated. That's what the Buddha is talking about here. Because once those pleasant feelings come into the mind and now become feelings, because that's the second part, if we don't catch it at the bodily sensations, it's going to become feelings in the mind and it's going to start polluting the mind. And now the mind can be shaken up by the feelings that come into the mind. And this is where that bowl of oil can be spilled and boom, the person's head gets chopped off, right? Based on this story. So someone who's interested in attaining enlightenment and progressing to the point where the mind is utterly stable, steady, focused, and concentrated, you would be aware of any bodily sensations associated with pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, and cut those off and let them go at the bodily sensations. Again, with breathing mindfulness meditation, training the mind to let go of the thoughts and come back to the breath, this becomes easier and easier of cutting off and letting go. But you still need to develop the awareness of these bodily sensations that they're arising. And this is where the mind is ultimately going to eliminate craving, desire, attachment and become more and more stable and steady. And eventually when you cut these bodily sensations off quicker and quicker, easier and easier, eventually the craving, desire, attachment is eliminated from the mind and then it no longer arises these bodily sensations and it no longer gets to feelings or condition or mental objects either. But you have to be able to catch it at the bodily sensations, which will help to eliminate that craving, desire, attachment. And you do that for an extended period of time. And eventually you get to the point where you can see the same beautiful girl or you can hear the same crowd or you can hear the same singing. And you might sit there and observe it, but it doesn't arise these pleasant feelings or it doesn't arise these painful feelings or it doesn't arise neither painful nor pleasant because the craving desire attachment has been extinguished. And this is where the mind becomes very steady and stable. And one of the things you can do with this visualization, you know, the Buddha is really great about coming up with these similes that are somewhat extreme to help us remember them. The more extreme they are, the better the mind can remember them. If you're that person that I talked about previously, where you know you have craving, desire, attachment, where the eyes pull towards handsome men or handsome women, and the mind is craving and longing to see certain physical forms, and you go into a public space where you know this is going to occur. If you can use this simile in the mind and imagine as if you do have somebody walking behind you, if the mind pulls in the direction of a handsome man or a handsome woman or any other thing that the eyes are attracted to, that your head's going to get chopped off, even though that's not going to occur. If you can think that way and kind of train the mind that way, 
that can be really, really helpful for you as you're walking through a mall or maybe you're doing walking meditation or you're doing something else. So this bowl of oil and directing your focus and attention to the bowl of oil, that is the Buddha connecting that you should focus your attention on the bodily sensations and be aware of the bodily sensations so that you can catch it there. And that's where you can uproot the craving desire attachment so that the discontentedness no longer starts to arise any longer. But you have to catch it many times and uproot it from the mind many times before you ultimately uproot each individual craving desire attachment that the mind's having. So let me see what questions you guys have on this chapter. Nick has his own Drizna. Yes, yes, sir. I was just wondering, how is this mindfulness to the body instead of concentration? I'm thinking with this simile, you'd, you'd have to have right or righteous concentration, just be so focused on the bowl. In your last statement, you said, you know, you got to direct it to the bodily sensations, like bodily sensations, um, like hearing the crowd or, or seeing something and that your peripherals. I'm just, I'm just not, I'm not seeing the connection for mindfulness towards the body uh, versus concentration. Sure. So think about mindfulness as awareness of mind and think about concentration as having singleness of mind. And by having mindfulness, then we can have concentration. We can't have concentration without mindfulness. Without having awareness of the mind, you can never get to concentration. So we need to have awareness of these bodily sensations. And if you've ever experienced anger where you felt this heat or these strong prickly feelings, or if you've ever been shy or stage fright and you felt butterflies in the stomach, or any, if you've felt pleasant feelings and you felt this kind of tickling, tingling feeling going through the body, these are the bodily sensations and others that the body can experience when there's arising pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So the mind has to be aware of those bodily sensations. It has to take note of them. It has to observe when they're arising. And then cut it off and let it go. And that's where the concentration comes in, is the singleness of mind. Because once the mind's aware of it, oh, there's the bodily sensations. Now with singleness of mind, cut it off and let it go. Whereas if the mind is trying to do two, three, four, five things at once, even though it can't, it's trying to do that, then you can't have mindfulness and awareness of this thing that's happening in the body. But when you slow the mind down and you come to singleness of mind and practicing that more and more, more and more the mind can develop its awareness and now it can be aware of these bodily sensations, cut those off and let them go. And this helps to cultivate concentration because as you clear out the craving desire attachments in the mind, it's no longer as polluted. The mind isn't pulling in the directions of the objects of its affection. That's why it can stay focused steady, stable, unshakable, and having more and more singleness of mind. So there's like this cyclical effect that by practicing something like mindfulness, being aware of the bodily sensations, you then practice right effort to cut those off and let them go. And by cutting off and letting go of the craving desire attachments, now you have more concentration and singleness of mind. By having more concentration and singleness of mind, the mind has better awareness 
and it can be aware when certain things are happening, then you can apply right effort, cut it off and let it go. You clear out those craving desire attachments. There's less pollution. Now you have more concentration. So it's like this constant cyclical effect that's happening. Okay, sir. I, I understand that I'm following that those examples, but in, in this scenario, I was just trying to figure out um, what would, you know, be pulling the other, bodily sensations pulling in the other directions. Like, I guess you would be nervous, so you'd have those, something in the stomach, I mean, if someone's about to cut off his head, or you'd be scared. So I guess those could be the bodily sensations, you know? There's going to be bodily sensations with any discontentedness whatsoever, but when he's talking about paying attention to the bowl, what he's saying is, you know, pay attention to the body. That's the body. Like, be aware of the oil, that the oil's not going to spill out of the bowl. Same thing, be aware of the bodily sensations that as you're walking or as you're going about your daily life, be aware and pay attention to any bodily sensations that are arising in the body. Ah, I see. Thank you, teacher. You're welcome. Well, no more questions for us, Chapter Teacher. All right. So, we're on Chapter 83. Yes, the next one is the Alan. Okay, Chapter 83. Uh, great good of mindfulness directed to the body. Monks, those who do not take part in mindfulness directed to the body do not take part in the deathless. Those who take part in mindfulness directed to the body take part in the deathless. Monks, those who are unattentive about mindfulness directed to the body are unattentive about the deathless. Those who are attentive about the mindfulness directed to the body are attentive about the deathless. All right. Thank you, Alan. So here the Buddha is emphasizing how important becoming aware and having mindfulness of those bodily sensations are. He's once again emphasizing that, and he emphasizes it in many different parts of his teachings. So he's essentially saying, pay attention, have this attentiveness towards the bodily sensations. And this is a full-time job. This is from the moment the mind wakes up until the moment the mind goes to sleep during all waking hours. Mindfulness is always useful, as the Buddha explains. And I talk about mindfulness in the group learning program and in volume one of this book series is just awareness of mind. Even though in volume one, I put in there about the four foundations of mindfulness, that really needs to be developed over time. But if you just think about mindfulness as general awareness of the mind, yes, in order to purify the mind, you need to have this general awareness of the mind. But more specifically, to really uproot and get to the real core problem and uproot that out of the mind, you need to have awareness of the four foundations of mindfulness. And that's what the Buddha is explaining here, is that those who have developed this awareness or this mindfulness of bodily sensations are working towards the attainment of enlightenment. He's talking about the attentive, about the deathless. This deathless is enlightenment itself because he talks about attaining enlightenment as attaining the deathless or the state of deathless. And the reason why is because prior to enlightenment, beings are in the cycle of rebirth, constantly being reborn over and over and over again. We're wandering, we're roaming, we've had multiple countless lives, we're hindered 
by our craving anger and ignorance, unknowing of true reality. We are fettered and have this pollution of mind of these 10 fetters, these 10 pollutions in the mind. And we're going to continue to have birth and death along with aging, sickness, and discontentedness throughout every single existence that we have. As long as there's birth, there's going to be aging, sickness, and death along with discontentedness. All of that's going to occur. But once somebody uproots all this pollution out of the mind and they attain enlightenment, they are now deathless. They have now attained this element of being deathless because once this existence for someone who's attained enlightenment, once this existence is over, the physical body will die and the mind will separate from the physical body. But that's just the physical body being impermanent, and that's the mind being impermanent and separating. There hasn't been any real death because there isn't a you, there isn't a self, there isn't this permanent self in the mind. When somebody's unenlightened and they still have a personal existence view, which is that first fetter, they still haven't realized non-self, they might say, I don't want to die because there's still an I there. And they're holding on with craving, desire, attachment to all these things around them. But for someone who's attained enlightenment, they don't have this concept of an I or a me or a you. They just see it as the physical body and the mind existing together. And neither of those two things are me or I. So once somebody attains enlightenment, they have attained the deathless. They will no longer die ever again. And of course, they won't be born again, but they won't die. At the end of that life where they've attained enlightenment, the physical body will decay and it will fall away because it's impermanent. The mind will separate from the physical body and that's impermanent as well. But the being no longer exists but there hasn't been any death because there is no I to actually die. There's no me to die. So that's what he's referring to here when he talks about the deathless. We call someone who's attained enlightenment as, okay, they're an arahant. They've attained enlightenment or they've attained the deathless. But they're going to then spend the rest of their life in that peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy and when the physical body dies and the mind separates, this is called final enlightenment or final nibbana. Because while the being is enlightened and they're still living like the Buddha did for 45 additional years, while the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, no longer experiencing any discontentedness whatsoever, you can still experience bodily pain. It's diminished. The mind doesn't react to it in the same way. It sees it as impermanent. The mind isn't shaken up by it. The mind is not in misery because of the physical pain, but you can still experience physical pain and you need that because if you're standing too close to a fire, then the mind needs to know, ah, physical pain, move away from the fire. But the mind isn't going to get shaken up or discontent because of that. It's just going to feel the pain and then make decisions to wisely move away from the fire because it's too close to the fire. So even in the enlightened mental state, while it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, it will still experience 
minor physical pains and any kind of pains associated with challenges with the physical body, but the mind won't relate to this pain in the same way. We call the body dying and the mind separating, we call this final enlightenment or final nibbana because at this point when the mind and body separate, they're no longer attached to each other. They're no longer holding on to each other and physical pain can no longer be experienced at that point. So they've transcended all painful feelings at that point. They've, during their lifetime, eliminated conditioned pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, experiencing peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy for the rest of that life. But there's still some occasional physical pains that can be experienced. But at death, when the physical body dies or when the physical body decays and the mind separates, at that point, there's no physical pain whatsoever because now the last attachment has been completely severed. And this is why we call it the final nibbana or final enlightenment. And this is why we call this the deathless because this being who's enlightened can no longer experience death because there's no you there. And in order to accomplish enlightenment, the Buddha is explaining here that you need to develop this mindfulness of bodily sensations or mindfulness directed to the body. Awareness of mind directed to the body so that you can observe the bodily sensations. Cut those off and let them go when you observe any discontentedness arising based on the six senses and you observe these bodily sensations, cut those off, let them go. And this is how the mind ultimately eliminates all central desire and all the other craving desire attachments, all the fetters and everything else. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? What questions is time, teacher? Okay, so we'll move on to the next chapter. Chapter 84. This is the one that you asked me to read, Bassam. Yeah, so this is connecting loving kindness with the five factors of well-spoken speech. It's going to be talking about how even though we practice the five factors of well-spoken speech, other people aren't going to be. And it even talks about this physical pain and not allowing hatred and anger and ill will to come into the mind, even if somebody's doing torturous, harmful things to you. And the Buddha, once again, is going to talk in extremes because if you can understand those extremes and how he's describing you should practice, then when somebody just is disrespectful or they kind of look at you in a certain way or they maybe are unkind, then you can deal with that a lot better if you understand this extreme that he's going to talk about in this teaching. So the title of the chapter 84 is Training a Mind Filled with Loving Kindness Without Hostility or Ill Will. Monks, there are these five courses of speech that others may use when they address you. Their speech may be timely or untimely, true or untrue, gentle or harsh, connected with benefit or unbeneficial, spoken with a mind of loving kindness or with inner hate. Herein, monks, you should train thus. Our minds will remain unaffected and we shall speak no evil words. We shall reside compassionate for their welfare, with a mind of loving kindness, without inner hate. We shall reside enveloping that person with a mind filled 
with loving kindness. And starting with him, we shall reside enveloping the all-encompassing world with a mind filled with loving kindness, abundant, joyful, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. That is how you should train monks. So here, so far, the Buddha is explaining that no matter how somebody speaks to us, that we should not allow the mind to have any hatred or ill will or any kind of hostility whatsoever. That even that person who speaks to us in hateful ways or harsh ways or any of these other ways that someone is not practicing the teachings of five factors of well-spoken speech, starting with that person, the Buddha is saying that we should reside compassionate for their welfare, having loving kindness for that person and all of the world and really encompassing the whole world with this immeasurable loving kindness without hostility and without ill will. Monks, suppose a man came with crimson, turmeric, indigo, or chamomile and said, I shall draw pictures and make pictures appear on empty space. What do you think, monks? Could that man draw pictures and make pictures appear on empty space? No, venerable sir. Why is that? Because empty space is formless and invisible. He cannot possibly draw pictures there or make pictures appear there. Eventually, the man would reap only tiredness and disappointment. So too, monks, there are these five courses of speech that others may use when they address you. Herein, monks, you should train thus. Our minds will remain unaffected, and we shall speak no evil words. We shall reside compassionate for their welfare, with a mind of loving kindness, without inner hate. We shall reside enveloping them, with a mind filled with loving kindness. And starting with them, we shall reside enveloping the all-encompassing world, with a mind filled with loving kindness abundant, joyful, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. This, that is how you should train monks. So here, essentially what the Buddha is talking about with this little depiction of a person drawing pictures, he's talking about different colors, this crimson, turmeric, indigo, and I think it's pronounced carmamine or something like that. He's saying that, you know, if there's just this empty space, essentially there's no canvas, then somebody can't draw pictures in an empty space. So if somebody's being harsh and hostile and aggressive and having hate towards you, if you don't allow that to stick, if you just let it be, then there's no more arising from you of this hatred, this anger, this ill will, this argumentative speech, then there's no harm that can be established there because of this empty space. Whereas if you provide the canvas and you allow this person's hateful speech or harsh speech to stick to you, now there's going to be some output. There's going to be something that's produced. There's going to be this maybe aggression, this argument, this fight perhaps that ensues. But when this anger, this hostility, this unbeneficial speech comes to you, if you just let it go, we might say, you know, let it roll off of the shoulder or let it go in one ear and out the other. We have these different sayings like this. 
the Buddha is using this one about not allowing these colors to be drawn. Essentially, there's empty space there that a person who comes with colors, even if they have the colors to paint, but there's no canvas there, then they can't paint. So if somebody comes with anger and hostility and aggression, but you don't allow any of that to stick, then there's no argument. There's no problem. Just walk away or let them spout off about whatever they're going to spout off about. Let it just roll off the shoulders, be unaffected by that individual. But at the same time, what the Buddha is saying here is cultivate this compassion for their welfare. Cultivate this mind of loving kindness, because while this person's being hateful, rather than go in and arise this hate in the mind, instead, just have compassion for them. It's so unfortunate this person has not learned these teachings. Here, this person is being hateful, vindictive, hostile, aggressive. Rather than you arising those same qualities and giving it back to them, instead, just observe and have compassion and loving kindness for this person. And this can allow the mind to be at ease. So the Buddha is saying, starting with this person and all-encompassing world, arise this loving kindness and compassion. And according to this, the Buddha spoke additional similes using other analogies along these same lines to illustrate the same point. And then he goes on in this simile and he says, Monks, even if criminals were to sever you savagely, limb by limb, with a two-handed saw, he who gave rise to a mind of hate towards them would not be practicing my teachings. So essentially, if criminals came and captured you, laid you out on a table, and with a, a saw, sawed you limb by limb by limb, the Buddha is saying, in this situation, don't arise hate. Instead, have this compassion and loving kindness, which is what he's going to talk about here. Here, monks, you should train thus. Our minds will remain unaffected. It's the same paragraph that we talked about earlier, where instead of having hatred for these people that are sawing you by limb by limb, have this compassion and loving kindness where you understand that they just don't have the wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline, and you can have this compassion for them. It doesn't mean you sit there and let them saw you. If you can get away from the situation, get away from the situation. But if you're trapped, the Buddha is saying, you know, don't allow hate and anger to arise in the mind. Monks, if you keep this advice on the simile of the saw constantly in mind, do you see any course of speech, insignificant or significant, that you could not endure? No, venerable sir. Therefore, monks, you should keep this advice on the simile of the saw constantly in mind. That will lead to your welfare and peacefulness for a long time. So this is what I was talking about at the beginning and related to some of the other similes, that if you can imagine literally being sawed limb by limb by limb and the amount of excruciating pain that that would cause and not allowing the mind to have hatred or anger, ill will, hostility or aggression for these individuals who are doing this, then the Buddha is saying, okay, if somebody speaks to you a little bit harsh or disrespectful or impolite or unkind, you know, can't you kind of endure that speech? Because it's really not that big of a thing as opposed to being sawed limb by limb. And even in that situation, don't arise hatred and hostility. So when you observe situations where people are directing speech to you that is 
one of these aspects or all of these aspects of being untimely, untrue, harsh, unbeneficial, or with inner hate, just look at it as being insignificant and don't pay it any mind and just let it go. You know, I think some of our grandmothers and grandfathers, our moms and dads might have said, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. So don't get to the point where you allow other people's words to hurt you because that's where you're giving other people power and your mind isn't liberated. Your mind isn't free because someone just can speak negatively or hateful and now your mind's shaken up. So train the mind to be unaffected by others' intentions, speech, and actions. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Well, do you agree, teacher, that um, others' words or speech by itself is not harmful for one's mind but what is harmful is the point in which one reacts unwisely to these words yeah if somebody speaks to you in one of these ways or all of these ways what's causing the pain is the craving desire for everyone to treat you polite kind friendly and respectful So we're not talking about what's right and wrong because, hey, it would be wonderful if the entire world, every single being in the world was polite, kind, friendly and respectful. But that's permanence. And we understand the universal truth of impermanence, that that's not the world that we live in. So if the mind has this craving desire for everyone to speak a certain way to you, then when people don't speak that way to you, you're going to be angry, you're going to be frustrated, you're going to be irritated. And that's what's causing the discontentedness to arise in the mind. So instead, if you get rid of that craving desire attachment and you understand impermanence, that when somebody is impolite, unkind, unfriendly, and disrespectful, then you just recognize it for what it is, which is, oh, this is impermanence. While the vast majority of the people in my life are polite, kind, friendly, respectful. Here's some impermanence. This person is lacking wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. No need for me to arise hatred or ill will or hostility towards this person. I can just practice compassion and loving kindness the way that the Buddha teaches, which is compassion is a concern for the misfortune of others. And loving kindness is a genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. So if you can arise those qualities of mind, then no matter what people say, you can then reside unaffected. Now, from that point, you might choose to no longer associate with this person, or maybe you just know that, okay, they're somewhat unwholesome, I'm gonna kinda keep a distance, but you don't allow painful feelings to arise in the mind based on their speech. Or if their speech comes to you and you observe that there is painful feelings in the mind, then you know that there's still craving desire attachment there. Maybe craving for people to speak to you in a certain way. Maybe there's the personal existence view where you have a certain self-image or a certain self-identity that you're trying to uphold. There might be some conceit there if the mind isn't enlightened yet. There might be some arrogance and pride that the mind is feeling diminished around people. So it might arise painful, hateful feelings. But when you observe that, those bodily sensations that arise prior to those anger and that hostility or that frustration, when you observe those painful feelings, cut it off and let it go. And this will help you to get to a point where the mind can reside unaffected 
by what's going on around you because we don't live in a world where everyone is polite, kind, friendly, or respectful. That would be permanence. And we need to train the mind to be unaffected no matter what people say or do. Doesn't mean that we need to associate with this, but there's going to be situations where people are harsh or aggressive or unkind. And that's part of the impermanence of the world. That's part of the lack of wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. But if every time that happens, you allow your mind to be shaken up and experience discontentedness because of it, your mind isn't liberated. Your mind is not free. It's now essentially being affected and shaken up anytime the wind blows. So when somebody blows out some aggression and hostility, the mind's shaken up. But you would like to get to a point where the mind is steady and stable regardless of what's happening around you. Thanks, teacher. Yes, go to Nick. Teacher David, um, you stated that uh, a practitioner might choose just to not associate with uh, people, but speak to them in an unkind, unfriendly, disrespectful way. But, but what advice would you give to listeners that uh, can't avoid certain people, like an ex-spouse that speaks harshly? Yeah, in those situations, you have to recognize that it's your gamma. It's the result of your decisions with that ex-spouse. So if you have children and you have this ex-spouse that you need to interact with, you can't just eliminate the relationship, right? So for another five years, 10 years, 12 years, however old the kids are, you're going to be interacting with this person. So you need to get to the point where you train the mind to be unaffected. Because you can't go around and push everybody out of your life that is going to be speaking harsh and aggressive with you. And if you're doing that with aversion where you think they're the ones who are causing your painful feelings and you're pushing them out of your life thinking that's going to solve the problem, it actually doesn't solve the problem because the mind still has craving, desire, attachment. It still has that personal existence view. It still has that conceit. And every single person who talks hostile, if you push them out of your life, then you're not actually solving the real problem, which is the craving, desire, attachment in the mind. So there's going to be situations like this where there are ex-spouses or there maybe is a neighbor that maybe you choose to live in this house and there's this neighbor who's somewhat hostile. So you have to recognize that this relationship with the ex-spouse or somebody else, it is impermanent. It's just a matter of when it becomes impermanent, right? It's impermanent. It's not going to last permanently, but you might have 10 years or 12 years or 15 years that you're going to need to interact with this person. And the more that you train your mind to be unaffected by them, then that's going to be helpful because the problem isn't that they're being aggressive. The problem isn't that they're being hostile. That's a problem for them. But the problem for you is that there's craving, desire, attachment for things to be a certain way. And when you focus on your problem in your own mind, then you can uproot that craving, desire, attachment and get to the point where even when this ex-spouse is aggressive or hostile or disrespectful, you can just smile and be unaffected by their speech. And this is where the mind is liberated from the person. It's liberated from this craving, desire, attachment. You're no longer carrying this burden around. So make sure that you understand what the real problem is. 
The problem isn't the ex-spouse. The problem is that the mind is craving for the ex-spouse to be a certain way. And there's personal existence view there. There's conceit there. There's craving for politeness, for kindness. When you let all that go and you can practice compassion and loving kindness for this ex-spouse and understand that you can have concern for their misfortune, you can have a genuine interest in seeing them be well, you're not going to change them. You're not going to be able to change them. But you can change your own mind. You can uproot the craving, desire, attachment that's causing those painful feelings. And then you can reside more peaceful in the situation. And by you improving the condition of your mind, you might observe that this gradually influences their mind. But it's going to take time. And you have to always understand that your goal isn't to change the other person. It's to change your own mind because you're going to come in contact with people who are hostile, who have ill will, who aren't practicing these teachings well. And when you do, you need to get to the point where your mind doesn't expect others to be a certain way or want others to be a certain way. And when you can train as a comprehensive approach to training your mind to uproot the pollution, this is where the mind becomes liberated. If someone's polite to you, you can smile and talk to them completely calm and peaceful and respectful. If somebody's hostile and aggressive with you, you can talk kind and polite and respectful. But there is some skillful things that you can do with ex-spouses and with anybody who is hostile. If I was communicating with an ex-spouse and they were hostile with me, I would just stop communicating for a few days. Any time that they're hostile, I wouldn't communicate with them. I would only communicate with them when they're peaceful when they're content and when they're being respectful. If you get in the habit of when they're hostile and they're aggressive, you stay in the fight, you stay in the argument and you're pushing it right back to them, trying to get them to see how wrong they are, then your craving desire attachment is motivating unskillful conduct. Whereas if somebody's hostile and aggressive with me on a text message or on a Facebook post or a private message, I just ignore it. I just don't give anything back and then if two three four five days later this ex-spouse approaches you again and now they're being peaceful okay talk to them but never interact with them when they're hostile when they're aggressive that just trains them that you're going to stay in the fight and you're going to keep talking to them but it doesn't make sense to talk with a wild animal that their mind is unhinged there's not going to be any beneficial results there so it's better to just disengage and then look to have conversation with them another time. There's some students that have this challenge with ex-spouses and I work with them very closely with observing text messages that are coming from ex-spouses, helping them to develop their own messages to send back and kind of teaching them how to improve their speech. And working with them on a one-on-one -on -one basis is the way to really fix this 100% because in a class like this and kind of talking generally like what advice would you give to someone who has an ex-spouse who's hostile well practice compassion and loving kindness okay well how do you do that it has to get down to the individual situations where the student has a one-on-one -on -one relationship with me and having personal guidance and they can send me a text message and say here's what my ex-spouse sent and here's the message that I'm going to reply back. 
do you see anything that I should potentially look at where I'm not practicing right speech? Because I'm not going to try to change the ex-spouse, but for you, I can look at your speech and I can look at your text message and give you help about how to interact with this person because there's surely things that you can be doing better that are going to produce better results. If your ex-spouse is being hostile and aggressive with you, there's things that you're also doing that is causing this to continue. That might be hard for somebody to hear because in your mind, you might feel that you have all the best intentions and you try to be respectful as much as you can, but I guarantee you there's things that you're doing that if you share your communication, you share your conversations, you work with me on a one-on-one basis, I can look at those things and help you see how by improving your speech, it's going to improve what's coming back to you. And when you do this over a longer and longer period of time, you can kind of rewire this relationship with your ex-spouse where it's not this win-lose relationship. That tends to be how ex-spouses think, either win or lose, win or lose, where what you're looking for is a win-win situation. But going through the process of divorcing and child custody and going through the courts and all this, the mind tends to get conditioned on this win-lose situation. And it's very challenging for ex-spouses sometimes to look at the win-win and let's figure out a win-win because the mind's always looking for the win-lose and everybody's trying to win. And what you need to do is get this relationship on solid ground where both parties can see that there's a win-win and we don't have to be at each other's throat. And that requires a lot of personal interaction and personal guidance for a student to reach out to me and choose to work with me on a one-on-one basis to help them see their speech and their conduct. Because you can't change others, but you can change your decisions. You can improve the decisions that you're making. And when you see the suggestions that I give you based on individual situations and how it produces better results, then you can see the truth that, ah, yeah, when I clean up my speech, I'm seeing some better results here. So that's what I would suggest is have somebody get in contact with me. Aside from all this general guidance that I've given, have someone get in contact with me so that they can have some personal guidance and somebody to turn to as like a life coach to help you bring this relationship up to stable ground. Thank you, sir. That sounds wonderful. Uh, I know a few people with this uh, circumstance. Yeah, it's very common in our society today, particularly in places where you live, Nick, in America, you know, when divorces happen, you know, it's lawyer, it's court, it's who's going to win, who's going to lose. There's almost like the daggers come out, the chainsaws come out. There's rare occasions where this doesn't happen and people can have a very cordial relationship. But until you learn how to have a healthy relationship with right view, right intention, right speech, and all the others, it can be a real struggle because there's so much attachment there because you've been partners in the past, you're no longer partners, you're living different lives, you're still seeing a bit of each other's life, you're showing up to a household where your ex-wife has a boyfriend or a girlfriend or your ex-husband or ex-wife has another partner there's other children involved, there's a different life here, and it's very challenging to raise children 
even when two partners are living in the same household together. And when you're living separately and you're having to participate in each other's life and it continues based on the relationships that you've had in the past, this can be a real struggle for the mind because there's so many craving desire attachments here. The relationship ended from the first place because it wasn't working. There was craving desire attachments that crushed the relationship and discontentedness was there. It wasn't working to begin with when we were living together as a couple having children. And now there's this extra strain of living apart and having to raise children together, which is actually more challenging than living together. So if we couldn't figure it out when we were living together, then living apart and trying to figure this out is even more challenging. So that's why it takes a lot of one-on-one guidance and coaching and a student would need to reach out to me to be able to work with me one-on-one to really be able to bring their practice up to a higher and higher level to bring the relationships onto more stable ground. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Well, no more questions for now, teacher. All right. So let's move to the next chapter, which is 85. Yes. Uh, the next volunteer is Miranda. Benefits of developing various kinds of meditation. Rahula, develop, me- develop meditation on loving kindness. For when you develop meditation on loving kindness, any ill will will be abandoned. Rahula, develop meditation on compassion. For when you develop meditation on compassion, any cruelty will be abandoned. Rahula, develop meditation on sympathetic joy. For when you develop meditation on sympathetic joy, any jealousy will be abandoned. Rahula, develop meditation on equanimity. For when you develop meditation on equanimity, any aversion will be abandoned. Rahula, develop meditation on unattractiveness of the body. For when you develop meditation on unattractiveness of the body, any lust will be abandoned. Rahula, Develop meditation on perception of impermanence. For when you develop meditation on perception of impermanence, the conceit I am will be abandoned. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here we've got the Buddha talking about the Brahma Viharas, these four healthy mental states of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, and talking about what those things remedy. So we cultivate this loving kindness and loving kindness meditation. And these other ones of compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, we cultivate them outside of meditation. And I'll talk about that in a moment. The unattractiveness of the body, that is cultivated in meditation as well. We can either use the 32-part body meditation, or we can use a meditation where we stare at pictures of corpses, or we actually go visit an actual corpse and meditate in the presence of a corpse. And somebody would do this in order to eliminate sensual desire and no longer being interested in having sexual contact and training the mind to see the unattractiveness in the human body. And then this last one where you develop the perception of impermanence through meditation. This is breathing mindfulness meditation in that when you observe the thoughts, when you observe bodily sensations, you observe that they're impermanent, cut those off and let them go. The Buddha is saying this helps to eliminate the conceit or the arrogance, the pride, I am, right? So this is part of that upper fetter of conceit. This also helps to soak the universal truth of impermanence into the mind. So these three meditations, loving kindness, 
on attractiveness of the body and breathing mindfulness meditation, I can see how they're connected to these three statements. And there's one other meditation that I teach, which is about developing and realizing non-self, which is what I would also connect to this last one, the perception of impermanence. So the perception of impermanence to eliminate the conceit I am is part of eliminating the personal existence view. And I teach a meditation to realize non-self, and there's a lot of other work that needs to be done outside of meditation in order for that to work, but that's what the Buddha is talking about here. These other three that the Buddha is talking about in terms of compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, we're translating this word to meditation. And we're saying, you know, develop meditation on compassion. For when you develop meditation on compassion, any cruelty will be abandoned. And we say meditation, and I define meditation as a dedicated, active, purposeful training session where we're either eliminating unwholesome qualities from the mind or cultivating wholesome qualities in the mind. But I don't know of any meditations that the Buddha taught specifically for compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. I think what's happening here is the translation that we're using of meditation is really the Buddha talking about cultivating these qualities in the mind because there aren't any specific meditations to cultivate compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Compassion can really get cultivated as part of loving kindness meditation. If you're cultivating loving kindness, this genuine interest for all beings to be well, then the mind tends to make it kind of easier to cultivate this concern for the misfortune of others as well. So that one kind of gets incorporated into that. But there's no specific meditation just for compassion that the Buddha taught. And likewise, the sympathetic joy is having joy for others' success, even if you didn't contribute to it. There's no meditation to specifically cultivate that in the mind. But instead, what I feel the Buddha is actually talking about here is just the genuine cultivation of sympathetic joy in the mind as part of your daily life. And by cultivating sympathetic joy in your daily life, then it eradicates this jealousy or this envy. So how would you do this? If you're in a situation where maybe you're at work or you're in a family conversation and somebody's getting attention or somebody's getting a present or somebody's getting a new job or you're at a holiday dinner and someone's talking about promotions that they received at work, have joy for them and just be like, oh, wow, that's so wonderful that Bob or Barbara got an award at work or got a promotion or got a raise or what have you. There's no specific meditation that you're going to do in order to arise that in the mind. It's something that you cultivate in daily life that when you're in situations where you observe jealousy or envy arising, you cut that off and let it go. And there's typically going to be bodily sensations associated with that, like we were talking about earlier, because this jealousy and this envy is discontentedness. And where you observe that, you cut it off and let it go and know that that's unwholesome, applying the right effort to cut that off and let it go. And then you arise this joy for others' success, even if you didn't contribute to it. So even if you don't feel it 100% in that situation where you're at a holiday dinner or you're at an award ceremony and somebody got something better than you, even though you might not feel it 100%, 
try to arise as much sympathetic joy as you can having this joy for others success even though you didn't contribute to it and then if you see that person in your workplace or if you see that person in the neighborhood or that person is having a conversation with you even though you don't feel it a hundred percent at least think it in the mind that you have this joy for their success maybe even say a few words to them in order to help them know that you feel joy for their success and the more that you do this you're kind of reprogramming the mind to have this joy and maybe the first few times it's a bit hard for you but then it gets easier and easier when you see the effects of this rather than holding on to this jealousy and this envy you cut that off and you let it go and you arise this joy same thing with equanimity equanimity is having calmness composure evenness of temper even in a difficult situation and especially in a difficult situation so there's no meditation specifically for equanimity but by doing breathing mindfulness meditation and focusing on the breath eliminating craving desire attachment then the mind can become more stable and more steady and you can then observe that the mind experiences more steadiness but then in daily life, when a difficult situation is occurring, you need to observe the mind and then cut off any aspects of the mind that are shaken up as a result of this difficult situation and practice equanimity, practice calmness, composure, evenness of temper. And where you observe that the mind is shaken up, cut that off and let it go and arise this equanimity. So these particular three here, I don't see any specific meditations for those anywhere in the Buddhist teachings, but I think what he's really talking about here that we happen to be translating the word meditation for is he's talking about developing and cultivating compassion for when you develop and cultivate compassion, any cruelty will be abandoned. You know, Rahula, develop and cultivate sympathetic joy for when you develop and cultivate sympathetic joy, any jealousy will be abandoned. That's what he's really referring to here. So let's see what questions you guys have on this. No questions, time teacher. All right. So let's go to chapter 86. Yes, uh, the next volunteer is Nick. One who is capable of entering and residing in right concentration. Monks. Possessing five qualities, a monk is incapable of entering and residing in right concentration. What five? Here a monk patiently endure forms, sounds, odors, flavors, and physical objects. Possessing these five qualities, a monk is incapable of entering and residing in right concentration. Monks. Possessing five other qualities, a monk is capable of entering and residing in right concentration. What five? Here, a monk can patiently endure forms, sounds, odors, flavors, and physical objects. Possessing these five qualities, a monk is capable of entering and residing in right concentration. All right. Thank you, Nick. So here, what the Buddha is talking about in terms of right concentration is he's talking about the jhanas, the four jhanas, those preliminary phases that the mind goes through prior to the first stage of enlightenment. And what he's saying is that 
a individual, a practitioner who cannot patiently endure forms, sounds, odors, flavors, and physical objects, those aspects that the mind is becoming aware of, if you can't endure those, then the mind is incapable of entering and residing in right concentration. Because if the mind hears a sound that it doesn't like, and it becomes discontent because of this sound, and it gets frustrated and irritated, then the mind can't reside with concentration because the mind is pulling towards this disagreeable sound and it wants agreeable sound. Or if you smell a certain odor and it's like, oh my goodness, that smells so horrible. The mind is discontent and it can't be concentrated because it's affected by this disagreeable odor. And it's because it's craving an agreeable odor through the nose. So what you would like to do in order to get into the jhana, among other things, is train the mind to distance itself from craving agreeable forms, sounds, odors, flavors, and physical objects. So in situations where you observe that the mind is having discontentedness as a result of these things, you need to be able to patiently endure them. It doesn't mean that you agree with them. It doesn't mean that you allow them to continue. It just means that you're able to maintain your concentration and your composure in situations like this. Let me give you an example. Say you're living in a house and some new neighbors move in across the street. And within a couple of days, you observe that you're falling asleep at 10, 11 o'clock at night or whenever you go to sleep. And there's just this ruckus and this partying and this loud music and this up all hours of the night, right? It doesn't mean that you need to just accept that and allow that to happen. But while that is happening, in you're about to make some decisions of potentially how to resolve this, what the Buddha is saying is maintain your composure, maintain your calmness, so that if you're going to go over there and maybe talk to your neighbors the next day or a couple of days later, you're not angry, you're not hostile at them. Because if you go over there angry and hostile and argumentative with them, it's not gonna solve the problem. Or if in that situation you felt like you needed to call the police, if you call the police and you're angry and hostile with the police, it's not going to solve the situation. So someone who's in the jhanas, whether they're experiencing disagreeable forms, sounds, odors, flavors, or physical objects, they would still be able to maintain their composure. They still might not like it. The mind might still be irritated. The mind still might be frustrated. The mind still might even be a little bit angry. But you observe that anger, you observe that frustration, you observe that irritation, but you choose not to act unskillfully as a result of it. That's what being patiently enduring these things are. Because in the jhanas, you're still going to experience discontentedness as a result of these things. It's not until the mind's completely enlightened and having eliminated central desire that the mind's no longer going to be shaken up at all you'll eventually get to the point where the mind won't even be shaken up by what's going on. But what decisions you make, whether you call the police, whether you wait a few days and go over and talk to them, however you try to skillfully handle this situation, doing so calmly and with composure, with this patience that the Buddha is talking about, that's what someone in the jhanas would be able to do. 
in all of these types of situations, whether it involves forms, sounds, odors, flavors, or physical objects. So let's see what questions you guys have here on this particular chapter. Not seeing any question for this one, they should. All right. Chapter 87. Yes. <clears throat> Do concentration in the morning, in the middle of day, and in the evening. Monks, possessing these factors, uh, three factors, a shopkeeper is capable of acquiring wealth, not yet acquired, and of increasing wealth, already acquired. What three? Here, a shopkeeper diligently applies himself to his work in the morning, in the middle of the day, and in the evening. Possessing these three factors, a shopkeeper is capable of acquiring wealth, not yet acquired, and of increasing wealth, already acquired. So too, possessing these fa three factors, a monk is capable of achieving a wholesome state, not yet attained, and of increasing a wholesome state, already attained. What three? Here, a monk diligently applies himself to an object of concentration in the morning, in the middle of the day, and in the evening. Possessing these three factors, a monk is capable of achieving a wholesome state, not yet attained, and of increasing a wholesome state, already attained. All right. So here, really simply, what the Buddha is basically doing is he's suggesting that you do meditation, morning, midday, and evening. That's what he did, and that's what he's suggesting here for students. Of course, you may or may not be able to accomplish that depending on what your lifestyle is. You might not be able to accomplish that every day, maybe only on days off or on the weekend. But what I suggest for people is two to three times a day for 30 minutes or longer, you should be doing meditation. And that's going to help you to develop the mind and train the mind to get to right concentration. Without that level of commitment and dedication, you're not going to be able to progress to enlightenment. If you're meditating just once a day for five minutes, okay, that's where you're starting and that's fine. And you're going to see some benefits with that, some marginal benefits. But if you're truly interested in getting to this enlightened mental state where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently, you're going to need to get to two to three sessions per day for 30 minutes or more per session. And the Buddha is suggesting here three times a day, which if you are an ordained practitioner or if you're retired or you have a holiday where you're on vacation for a while and you can do that, then do that. If you're actively working and you can do morning and evening, that's great. That's twice a day. And if you work in a workplace that allows for a lunch in the middle of the day and you can meditate in the middle of the day, outstanding. But always think of meditation as an accumulative benefit. Everyone's going to have to do an enormous amount of meditation in order to get to enlightenment. And if you can think about your meditation sessions as kind of all accumulating together to fill up this bucket of water, then maybe in your daily life, you do two or three meditation sessions and you kind of work towards that. And that's generally what you do. But let's just say you're off work for two weeks or three weeks or four weeks because of COVID or because of a holiday or maybe a death in the family or a new baby or something like this. And you can carve out more time during that. Then go ahead and do that. You can change your meditation practice. You don't have to keep it fixed. 
So even if you're normally like a once a day person, which like I mentioned, you're going to have to get to two to three times a day in order to get to enlightenment. But say like you just started on this path and you've been meditating once a day for two or three months and now you go on holiday for two weeks. During that time, if you can ramp up to two or three times a day during your holiday, because now you've got more time, then you'll be more likely to get into that same type of frequency when you get back to your regular daily life. But even if you end up going back to once a day when you get back to your normal daily life, the benefits of those two or three weeks where you were meditating for two or three times a day, those all accumulate and add more and more water to this bucket that you're trying to accumulate the benefits. So always work towards two or three times a day for 30 minutes or more per session. That's what you're working towards. But look at opportunities where you can maybe do more meditation. There's actually times where I was able to do five or six meditations in a particular day, and it worked out fine for me to do that. But trying to do that long term, that wouldn't be sustainable and actually get everything accomplished that I need to get accomplished in a certain day. But there's most days, two to three times a day. There's an occasional time where I do once a day. But then there's some days where I might do four or five a day as well. And this all balances out and accumulates to benefits in your daily life to the condition of the mind. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? In some busy days, it's not okay. It's not easy to find time to meditate three times, especially meditation in the middle of the day. Is it okay to practice meditation while on public transportation? Sure. That's actually a wonderful time to meditate because there's different noises, there's different sounds, there might be some movement in the transportation, someone might come by and bump you. This is really good for training of the mind. You know, oftentimes we think about meditation as being in this completely serene, completely peaceful place where there's no noise and there's no disturbances. I think of that like a Petri dish and things can grow quite well in a Petri dish. But also, when you put this mind into all this impermanence, like on public transportation, that's so ideal for the mind because it's got all this impermanence to deal with. It's got to not only deal with the thoughts, it's got to deal with the movement of the transportation, the sounds, the smells, the sights, all the different things that are happening. This can actually enhance the mind and really bring it up to a higher and higher level of concentration. Because if you can concentrate while meditating on a bus, meditating at home in your living room will be quite easy. So you can actually challenge the mind like this and work on it by putting it in situations where it has to deal with all that impermanence. And that's really wonderful for the mind. Thanks, teacher. No more question. All right. So chapter 88. Yes, the next volunteer is Miranda. Remote lodgings in forests and jungle groves are hard to endure. Venerable sir, I wish to retreat to remote lodgings in forests and jungle groves. Remote lodgings in forests and jungle groves are hard to endure, Pali. Solitude is hard to undertake and hard to delight in. When he is alone, the woods steal the mind of a monk who does not gain concentration. It can be predicted that one who says, I do not gain concentration yet, I will retreat to remote lodgings in forests and jungle groves, will either sink or float away. Suppose, Upali, there was a large lake and a bull elephant seven or eight cubits in size would come along. 
He might think, let me enter this lake and playfully wash my ears and back. I will bathe and drink, come out and set off wherever I want. He then enters the lake and playfully washes his ears and back. He bathes and drinks, comes out and sets off wherever he wants. How so? Because his large body finds a footing in the depths. Then a hare or a cat comes along. It might think, how is a bull elephant different from myself? I'll enter this lake and playfully wash my ears and back. I will bathe and drink, come out and set off wherever I want. Then, without reflecting, it hastily enters the deep lake. It can be predicted that it will either sink or float away. Why so? Because its, it's small body does not find a footing in the depths. So, too, it can be predicted that one who would say, I do not gain concentration, yet I will retreat to remote lodgings in forests and jungle groves, Will either sink or float away. Come, you Polly, reside within the community. While you reside within the community, you will be at ease. Thank you, Miranda. So this is a student coming to the Buddha and saying, hey, I'm going to go out in the forest and do some training. And the Buddha's like, hold on a second. You might, want, you might be interested to think about this and reflect on this a bit. I imagine this is kind of a newer student who is maybe kind of stepping up to a level of training that the Buddha thinks that is probably not appropriate for this student. And one of the roles of a teacher is to know the mind of their students and guide them. The teacher isn't going to make the decision for the student, but it's going to kind of give them guidance and encouragement based on what they know and what they understand. The Buddha spent a long time in the forest and in the jungle, so he knows what it takes to reside in the jungle and train the mind in the jungle. And the Buddha explains how it's really quite challenging to go do that. And he thinks that this student isn't really prepared for that. And he gives him this analogy of this elephant, that the elephant can go off and do this, but this hare and this cat isn't able to do the same thing. So there's a bunch of different lessons here. One of the lessons is, you know, be sure to know if you're an elephant or you're a hare or you're a cat. You know, if you've just started on this path and you commit to a 10, 15, 30 day meditation retreat where it's complete silence and eight to 10 hours of meditation per day, that's probably not the best place for you because you're just starting out. Your mind isn't really ready for that level of training. So you will probably float away or you'll sink. You maybe give up on the practice because it wasn't something that the mind was prepared for. But someone who maybe has prepared their mind and who has done a lot of work, maybe that's something that is going to really test and challenge the mind. It's something that you might decide to actually do. So be sure that you always observe your own mind. Understand that this is an independent practice with you making your own choices. But also be sure that you challenge the mind, but you don't over-challenge the mind. It's important to test the mind and challenge it in certain situations, but be sure that this challenge is something that's really attainable. And then at the same time, be sure to consult with your teacher in certain situations, because if you're going to go off to the jungle, it's probably a good idea to consult with your teacher and see what your teacher thinks about that. Or if you're going to go off on a 30-day retreat where there's complete silence and eight or 10 hours of meditation per day, you should probably check in with your teacher before you go off and do that because you might actually be going into the water and you're either going to sink or you're going to float away. But what you would like to do is step up to challenges that are challenging, but you can be that elephant 
that has a strong footing and you can be successful in going into this challenge and out of this challenge. So any questions on this particular chapter? Miranda has his, her hand raised, let's go to you. Um, yes, David. You said that it would be wise for a student to come to their teacher and seek guidance on whether they would be ready for a longer meditation retreat or a period of seclusion. But before even coming to their teacher, how would someone know or start thinking that they might be ready for something like that? Sometimes the mind can have craving, desire, attachment for something like a meditation retreat, right? And this is where you understand that there's no such thing as a wholesome craving, desire, attachment. It doesn't mean that the retreat is unwholesome or something like that. But if the mind is longing with a strong eagerness, it might actually think that this thing, this meditation retreat is the next shiny object around the corner that's going to solve so many things for them and they're just chasing after the objects of their affection it's still the craving desire attachments but in reality if the student isn't aware of that craving by checking in with their teacher the teacher can kind of help them see that and this is one of the reasons why students need a teacher is because while there's craving desire attachment there while there's this arrogance, this ego, this conceit, the mind can't always observe itself. And having somebody who you have complete trust in and you have complete confidence in, and you know that that individual has only an interest in seeing you be well, being peaceful, and they're only interested in seeing beneficial things for you, when you come to that person and you ask them questions, they can share objectively information with you that can help you and then you'll be more likely to see some of the things that they talk to you about or share with you that you might not have been able to see for yourself. So oftentimes craving desire attachment can motivate people to do something like go out into the jungle when they're really not prepared for it. And then if they get out there in the jungle and perhaps they die or perhaps their mind gets further diluted or maybe they have all kinds of challenges and they give up, then it hasn't really been successful. So by checking in with a teacher, it's not that you're looking for the teacher's approval. I don't think of it that way. I think of it as you're consulting with this life coach, you're consulting with this other individual who you have trust and respect for, and you know they only have a genuine interest in seeing you be well, and you use their advice and guidance as something to consider. As I've mentioned in previous classes, a teacher should never make a decision for their students, but if you at least have respect and trust for a teacher and you can consult with them and get advice, that teacher shouldn't be approving or disapproving what you do, but instead just providing some objectionable advice that can potentially be something that you consider and can help you in making your decision. But ultimately, the decision is with each individual practitioner. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Well, no more, no more question for them, for sure. Okay, so let's go to the next one, 89. Yes, let's go to Nick for this chapter. Four times, greatly developed and coordinated, gradually culminate in the destruction of the taints. Monks, these four times, rightly developed and coordinated, gradually culminate in the destruction of the taints. What for? The time for listening to the teachings the time for discussing the teachings, 
the time for serenity, and the time for wisdom. These four times rightly developed and coordinated gradually culminate in the destruction of the taints. Just as when it is raining and the rain pours down in thick droplets on a mountaintop, the water flows down along the slope and fills the clefts, gullies, and creeks. These become full, fill up the pools. These becoming full, fill up the lakes. These becoming full, fill up the streams. These becoming full, fill up the rivers. And these becoming full, fill up the great ocean. So too, these four times, rightly developed and coordinated, gradually culminate in the destruction of the taints. All right. Thank you, Nick. So this is similar to what I've described in the past, where learning and practicing these teachings, it's a gradual progression on the path. I discuss it as like this drip feed, almost like if you've ever been hooked up to an IV, which they didn't have during the lifetime of the Buddha, but essentially that IV fluid is just drip, drip, right? It's just gradually dripping into the body and helping the body become more healthy. Well, this path to enlightenment is very similar. And that's why these classes are, you know, three times a week and you can pick up the book and you can meditate. You're gradually developing your practice more and more. And the Buddha is talking about a little bit of detail around that gradual development of your practice. And he says, okay, there's this time where you need to listen to the teachings, where you need to come to a teacher. You need to listen to discourses. You need to ask questions. You need to engage with the material. And then there's this time for discussing the teachings where maybe you discuss them with your teacher, you discuss them with other members of your community, because once you listen to the teachings, you've learned them. Now discussing them with others helps arise the understanding in the mind and helps to clarify the teachings a bit, putting them maybe into your own words or having discussions with other students, other people in the community can help to kind of further soak the mind with these teachings, arising them into the mind. So discussing them with other people can be really, really helpful for you. But of course, you should only do that with people that are interested in discussing them. You shouldn't try to force your way into talking about these teachings with people, but only for people who are open to discussing them with you and who've maybe engaged you in conversation. Then there's this time for serenity. So if you've been investigating the teachings by listening to them, by discussing them. The Buddha didn't have this during his lifetime, but reading, watching videos, listening to podcasts, listening to audiobooks, coming to retreats. Those are all things that we do today that are encompassed in this listening to the teachings and discussing the teachings. Well, that's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to do that stuff. And it's a lot of work to work on the mind and improve the condition of the mind. So this third thing that the Buddha is talking about is there's this time for serenity or this time for relaxation, this time kind of take a break a bit, right? If you're just go, 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 hitting the books, hitting these classes, hitting this stuff really, really aggressively, that's going to essentially burn out eventually because those things are usually happening because of craving, desire, attachment, and that's going to burn out and you're not going to be able to sustain it. You got to think about developing your life practice and getting to enlightenment like you know, a million marathons put together and you're going to be running these marathons back to back to back to back. But you need to have these 
little breaks. You know, you need to take some downtime, you know, observe that the mind needs that rest and relaxation. And then that also further allows the teachings to soak in. Because if you've listened to the teachings either live or books or videos or podcasts or what have you, you've been discussing them with friends and family, people are interested in discussing them. When you take this time to relax, it kind of allows the teachings to soak in and penetrate into the mind a bit more. Then there's this fourth aspect where, okay, now it's time to start applying that wisdom in your daily life. And now it's time to apply this wisdom and making wise decisions and seeing the results of what actually happens. This is your practice, actually practicing the teachings. And then when you observe how you practice these teachings in daily life, then you're probably going to have to start talking to your teacher again, listening to the teachings, discussing them with other members of the community. Then you're going to need this time for rest. You're going to have to then apply those new things that you've learned that have soaked into the mind through a rising wisdom and making wise decisions in daily life. And you have this cyclical effect that the mind is gradually building more and more wisdom. And by doing this, Gradually, it culminates in the destruction of the taints or the fetters, those 10 fetters, those pollutions of mind. And this is the gradual process of gradually building up your practice and working to eliminate the taints or eliminate those fetters, the things that are keeping the mind trapped in the unenlightened state. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? No questions, thank you, teacher. All right, so our last chapter for Today's class is chapter 90. One should be mindful and clearly aware. Monks, a monk should be mindful and clearly aware. This is my instruction to you. And how is the monk mindful? Here, a monk resides reflecting on the body as body, dedicated, clearly aware, mindful, and having put away all craving and worry for the world. And likewise, with regard to feelings, mind and mental objects. That is how a monk is mindful. And how is a monk clearly aware? Here, a monk, when going forward or backward, is aware of what he is doing. In looking forward or back, he is aware of what he is doing. In bending and stretching, he is aware of what he is doing. In carrying his inner and outer robe and bowl, he is aware of what he is doing. In eating, drinking, chewing, and tasting, he is aware of what he is doing. In passing experiment or urine, he is aware of what he is doing. In walking, standing, sitting, or lying down, in keeping awake, in speaking, or in staying silent, he is aware of what he is doing. That is how a monk is clearly aware. A monk should be mindful and clearly aware. This is my instruction to you. All right. Thank you, Bossom. So this is how I usually talk about the progression of getting to wisdom and wise decisions that are going to lead to wholesome results and wholesome outcomes. I talk about when the mind is calm, then you can practice mindfulness or awareness of mind. Then with that, you can have concentration or singleness of mind. And then you can access wisdom to be able to arise this wisdom and make wise decisions leading to wholesome outcomes. Well, here the Buddha is talking about that mindfulness and he's talking about the concentration and singleness of mind. 
those are the the heart of what I'm talking about when I say calmness, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. Because likewise, if the mind is uncalm, if it's shaken up, you're not going to have awareness of mind. The mind's going to be all shaken up. There's not going to be focus. There's not going to be singleness of mind or clear comprehension or clearly aware what the Buddha is talking about here. And therefore, you're not going to be able to access wisdom and make a wise decision in the given situation. So here the Buddha is advising to have this mindfulness or this awareness of the bodily sensations, the feelings, the condition of the mind, and mental objects. These are the four foundations of mindfulness. And then having awareness of those things, of course, you're going to be applying right effort where you see discontentedness, where you see bodily sensations. You're going to be cutting that stuff off and letting it go. And in doing so, it's going to arise concentration. But while you're practicing this mindfulness, you also need to be practicing this clearly aware or this concentration or this clearly comprehending, this singleness of mind. He's describing being aware when you're going forward, backwards, when you're looking forward or backwards, when you're bending or you're stretching, when you're carrying your inner robe or bowl, when you're eating, drinking, chewing, tasting, when you're having excrement or urine, uh, urinating, when you're walking, standing, sitting, or lying, when you're awake or you're speaking or staying silent. He's giving you all these examples of things that you're doing, but he's saying do just one thing at a time, just having singleness of mind. So it's not just these things, right? Today we could say when you're talking on the phone, just talk on the phone. When you're watching TV, just watch TV. When you're in a business meeting, focus on the presenter, the person who's talking. When you're in a conversation with your life partner, just focus on the conversation with your life partner. When you're talking with your kids, just talk with your kids. When you're talking with your children's teacher, just talk with your children's teacher. We could go through you know, a multitude of various tasks and activities that we do on a given day. When you're driving, just drive. Because if you're driving and then you're daydreaming and thinking about something else, that's when you're likely to get into the car accident. Or if you're walking down the street and you're listening to a podcast and you're all caught up in the podcast or the music, this is where you're likely to trip or twist your ankle, right? All of these things are happening because the mind doesn't have singleness of mind. It's not focusing and have this clear awareness. So by having this singleness of mind, it also feeds into mindfulness. And while I put this in order of calmness, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom, all of these things play on each other. Because by having more wisdom, you can train the mind to be more calm. By being more calm, you can have more mindfulness. By having more mindfulness, you have more concentration. But by having more concentration, you can have more mindfulness. And by having more mindfulness, you know when the mind is uncalm, so therefore you can maintain your calmness. So these things, they go back and forth in both directions. And the Buddha is just making it clear here that yes, practice mindfulness, be aware of the bodily sensations, feelings, the condition of the mind, and mental objects. And practice singleness of mind where you're just focused on one thing at a time because that's going to produce the best results in your life. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Not seeing any questions time, teacher. All right. So that's our last chapter for today. In our next class, we're going to be in chapters 91 through 100. 
And if you're joining this class for the first time, you can download this book from buddhadailywisdom.com and you can read chapters 91 through 100 over this coming week. And then when we get together on Saturday, you'll be able to ask questions that maybe came up during your reading because there's the Buddha's words. Then there's a reference that you can go back and look at the original source if you like, because he's usually talking about something before and after these different chapters. And then there's an explanation from me helping to explain the chapter to you. So if you read all of that during your week, when you come to class, then you might have questions and clarifications, or you might have questions about how to apply a certain teaching to your life. And that's what this class is for. A lot of students will take the group learning program on Sunday and Wednesdays first, and then kind of ease into this program. But there are some students who actually do both at the same time. They will do the group learning program on Sunday and Wednesdays in this one as well. So depending on the amount of time that you have, you can actually learn through all of these classes because I'm teaching classes on Sunday, Wednesday, and Saturday. So next Saturday, we'll be doing chapters 91 through 100. Tomorrow in the group learning program, we're in volume one, chapter six, where we're going to be studying the middle way. This is in the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. In chapter six, I'm going to share this very simple teaching with you, and then we're going to discuss it and have a talk about it. It tends to be a fairly short talk because it's a very simple teaching, but some of the most simple teachings can actually have the most profound effect to your practice. So when you learn about the middle way and you learn how to apply that to the Eightfold Path and all other parts of your life, you'll see that it really has a profound effect for you. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be in the second class of our four-part series. We're doing a four-part series on Buddhist chanting, and we're in the second class of that that we'll have on Wednesday. So I'll see you in either Sunday, Wednesday, or Saturday, perhaps all three of those days. And in the meantime, have a very lovely rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.